battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, an Alabama state senator doesn't want your child to have health care. Tommy Tuberville continues to scold Alabamians, and a rail strike is back on the table. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show, we've got a phone number and... The line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail or send us a message all throughout the week. If you, hadn't got, uh, if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you want to just see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere you find anything online. We're on YouTube, TikTok. Twitter, Facebook, newly on Twitch, at TVLR, uh, TVLRFM, on Twitch, at TVLRFM. And I think we're live on Twitch right now. Uh, we're not today, but oh. next week we will be. Next week we will be. Okay, so follow that if you're a Twitch watcher. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program, you want to make a one-time donation, uh, buy our stickers, you can go to our website. That's tvlr.fm. You can make a donation at tvlr.fm slash donate. You can go to our store at tvlr.fm slash store. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Uh, if you're a member of a union, definitely, definitely think about getting your local to sponsor the show. Uh, you can reach out to me for more details on that. Um, and so with that, let's just go ahead and, and, and jump into uh, jump into this first. Oh, uh, <laughs> Strom in the chat says, or as Larry King called it, the tweeter. Good morning, uh, Jared, Strom, Patrick, David, everybody in the chat. We appreciate y'all joining us. Don't think we have anybody in the Facebook chat yet, but I'm sure that Joe and Mel will be joining shortly. Um, and yeah, just don't hesitate to call in. We got a couple of really good comments on our YouTube channel last week. Um, folks that had some really interesting stories about their about their union and their workplace. Um, and so I told them last week to definitely feel free to call in sometime today. So would love to hear from them for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Keep the comments coming, keep the text and the phone calls coming. Uh, and I'm just going to take a second to 
just wish everyone happy holidays and I hope everyone's had a great Thanksgiving. I am very thankful for, for all of you who support this program, whether you are a regular listener or you contribute financially or you have shared this program or, or turned other people on to it. Really appreciate it. Very thankful for the, the community we have built around the Valley Labor Report and, of course, all of the sponsors and donors and, and guests. We've had some amazing guests. So, uh, yeah, just feeling really thankful for that and, and thankful for my union for giving me some work last night. There you, go. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Yeah, so um, it's funny that uh, that you mentioned having to work last night, you know, till almost midnight or something, because... Uh, to hear Tommy Tuberville tell it, Alabamians just aren't working anymore. Nobody wants to work anymore, actually. So they say. So they say. So every time I show up at work, I'm like, wait, I thought no one yeah. was going to be here. I thought no one. I thought I was going to be the <laughs> only one. All right, wait, wait a second. Why am I even at work? I thought that I could just stay home and get this huge government check. Yeah. Apparently, you, apparently uh, we've been missing out. Like, <laughs> apparently, apparently, the government is just just cutting out checks, r- making yeah. it rain, and just we are nowhere to be found. And right, left and right. Uh, the government, not only the government, but this is a totally different thing. But apparently, like George Soros is out here funding all sorts of stuff, and we are still, still nothing. Yeah, from George Soros. I, I can report today. George Soros has given zero dollars to the Valley Labor Report. Are to uh, and to us personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that's a common concern out there, especially on uh, WVNN. Yeah, yeah, it's really a shame. Uh, really a shame. Uh... So if y'all know George Soros, you know, yeah. put in tell, a word for tell, us. Put in tell him to check it, uh, chip in a few bucks. But it's yeah, Thanksgiving. So, you know, Tuberville last week, he was in AL.com lecturing Alabamians about our will to work. This is an elaboration um, that he made on some comments uh, to the media a couple weeks earlier, uh, where a couple weeks earlier, and we responded to this at the time, he said, quote, what's happening in our country right now, we're getting too many takers in our country, too many people to take a check and they don't want to give back. They don't want to go to work. We've got Generation X and these millennials. We've got to get them to understand that you have to tote your own load. And and just like Ooh, just we, like the last time. You weren't here, actually, Adam, when we covered these comments first. Uh, but but lest you, you know, reckon that he's got this weird axe to grind against Generation X. It was actually Generation Z um, that, you know, teenagers, literally. Like, gen- so, like, the, the kids of yeah. Generation X. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 oldest Gen Z people are now what 23 24 and he's already wanting to lecture them about not working enough and this is like the oldest generation Z people are just getting out of college like most generation Z people are still in high school and Tommy Tuberville he meant to scold them about not working while they're in high school right I mean well I mean Hyundai's probably hiring right right yeah yeah Hyundai's probably hiring you say Hyundai really weird, uh, but but yeah, they're probably hiring. They um, probably are, but I don't know, 18, 17, that's a little old for them. Yeah, it, it's, it's a little old for Hyundai. But he said, uh, then he, he later elaborated on those comments to another media, uh, to like WAFF, I think, said, quote, we're getting too many takers in our country. They'd rather take a government check, which like, like Adam and I said, we're not, I don't know how people are getting these apparently, but but apparently a lot of people are. Apparently, it's just just out there. So, 
those were just kind of one-off comments that he made to the media. And so, so last week he, he really dug in, he sat down, you know, he got, he put on his thinking cap and he, he got, he sat down at his desk and he penned an article, probably, you know, the, the, the most concentration that he has spent on a single task in a long time. Um, I, I or at least who someone are, in his yeah, office. Yeah, who are yeah? I was about to say, who are we kidding? This is this. He didn't write this, obviously. <laughs> this was some like seventeen-year-old staffer that he has. Um, the article is titled "Big Government Is Suffocating American Businesses," um, and you can probably guess the through line, right? It's the through line is that you greedy, no good, lazy Alabamians. You just you just ain't working enough, and you just ain't working hard enough, uh, because the government is just giving you too much damn money. That's what he thinks about you, and that's what he thinks about us, and that's what he thinks about the people that elected him, right? That's what he thinks about the people from the state that he is representing, because he was specifically addressing this to Alabamians. That's what he thinks about us. Um... And now, you know, look, of course, of course, this is a silly argument, especially now, because we're about a year after the last of the COVID support, which all of these people are pointing to, we're a year after all of that has expired. Right. And and we'll get into that and we'll, we'll lay that out, you know, in more detail. But first, I just want to soak in the irony of somebody like Tuberville. Somebody like Tuberville lecturing Alabamians about hard work. Because we're not the ones that got millions, millions with an S of public dollars to quit our jobs. That was Tommy Tuberville when he got $5 million to quit as the head coach of Auburn. We do not have retirement payouts above the median income. Do you know how much money he makes, Adam, from his pension from Auburn? I did not realize this until we did this article and you pointed that out. He gets, uh, that's wild. He gets almost $70,000 a year from Auburn as a pension because he worked there for 10 years. $70,000 is like 1.5 times the median salary in the state of Alabama. Like, that's how much money, that is that is 50% more than the average Alabamian makes for working a full week of work, and he just gets it sitting on his ass. $70,000 a year. $70,000 a year for for literally doing nothing because he's this is his pension and that's after that's after he got five million dollars to again do nothing right quit and um there are very very few education employees in the state of alabama who are making retirement income anywhere close to that even probably most superintendents and principals right who have been in the in the system 25 30 30 40 50 years and we're not, you know, working people aren't getting these type of, even working people, so few working people are getting retirement pensions for a whole career at a place that are that lucrative. 
much less, you know, a retirement pension that is from having worked somewhere for 10 years. That's Tommy Tupperville. We, working Alabamians, we did not say that a near $200,000 salary is so little as to disincentivize us from doing our jobs. That's Tommy Tuberville when he shot down the idea of a stock trading ban for Congress. If you'll remember this, is we also covered this. There was a push among Democrats, and then it was killed by Nancy Pelosi, you know, for reasons that you can probably understand, uh, <laughs> because she, just like Tommy Tuberville, is making a whole lot of money off of those tips that she's getting in Congress. Uh, but Tommy Tuberville shot down the idea when asked about it, because he said, it would disincentivize people from going to Congress. Can you believe that? Congress people make $175,000 a year. Which is, is better than the vast majority of Alabamians will ever Seriously. make in a year. And now, you know, of course, of course the argument is that, okay, you know, they've got, they've got a, you know, I don't have a problem necessarily with them making one hundred seventy-five dollars or even 200000 or even 225000 You know, they do have to, you know, and especially people that live in like New York or California, you know, they have to have two residences. And in places like New York or California, they've got to have two residences in like the most expensive districts in the country, right? So, you know, $200,000, it's not unreasonable, but it is certainly not so little as to disincentivize somebody. Right. There's plenty of reasons why someone may not want to serve in Congress, but, you know, surely it's not the salary. Yeah. Uh, if it's the salary, then that's not the kind of person we want in Congress to begin exactly. with. Exactly. Exactly. But that's the kind of person that Tommy Tuberville is. Right. That's the kind of person that Tommy Tuberville is because he just basically said it. Like, if he wasn't talking about himself, who was he talking about? If he... So he basically just admitted that if he was not able to make millions of dollars off of stock tips while he's representing us, that he would not... He wouldn't want to represent us. It's not lucrative enough for somebody like Tommy Tuberville. And you watch. I, I feel like he isn't going to run for another term. I think he's going to cash in on this term. Mm, nah, I think he'll I think he'll keep doing it because he's making I mean, he's making millions of dollars. He violated the Stock Act with a million dollars. It was like eight hundred ninety four thousand dollars worth of trades worth of trades that were just in violation of the Stock Act. That's big money. That's big money that was traded against the law. That's not even, you know, who knows how much he's trading like within, Period, right. within the realm of the law. But he traded almost a million dollars against the law illegally, right? And, uh, you know, so he's making a lot of money off of these tips. And he, he was actually, I think, the most prolific trader in the Senate. There was not a single other person. And, of course, he beat the market, right? Of course, he beat the market, but it, it's not like he was doing, you know, insider trading or anything like that. Of course not. Of course not. No, never. So that that uh, that wasn't us, right? Working Alabamians, you give us two hundred thousand dollars, you give us a hundred thousand dollars a year. That is plenty to incentivize us to do our jobs, right? But but not Tommy Tuberville. Not Tommy Tuberville. And that's the irony of this thing. That's the irony of somebody like Tommy Tuberville lecturing us about our will to work. Because every day, every day in the state of Alabama, tens of thousands of teachers get up and go to work for less than a fourth of what the senator makes. 
Some teachers are going to work for $30,000, $35,000 a year. I know somebody working for the state mental health department uh, taking care of, of literally mentally ill children in our state schools for $37,000 a year. Right. And this person gets up every single day and does it. Every single day. She gets up and goes to take care of the children who are literally the most difficult to take care of for $37,000 a year. Volunteer firefighters across the state do the job for free to give back to the community. Municipal employees, we covered this a couple months ago, in Selma are working for as little as $9 an hour to keep our municipalities running. Meanwhile, if Tupperville isn't able to get millions of dollars from stock trades, he implied that he wouldn't put in the work in D.C. to represent us. And yet he is scolding us about our will to work. I mean, could you just could you imagine being somebody like that, being somebody who is just making money off of money, not off of work, right? Not off of work. He's making money off of money, which, I, you know, we can put aside the conversation about whether or not it's legitimate to make money off of money. You know, I think that probably you can guess some of our feelings about people who make money off of money, but let's just set that aside. It is true that people who make money off of money are not working to make the money, right? Right. I mean, there's it's just, working people. There's that, a fundamental difference between going to work and selling your labor and your time in exchange for a wage or a salary right. versus numbers on a, a spreadsheet that yeah, grow. The number gets bigger. The number getting bigger. That's the work that he does. The work that he does is he just has a spreadsheet and the number gets bigger. Right. The number gets bigger. And he is scolding us about our will to work. I mean, just the gall, the gall of it. But look, you know, look, I want to I want to be fair to the arguments as well. I want to be fair to the arguments because the arguments don't depend on the messenger. You know, maybe maybe it's possible. It's possible that even though he is a total hypocrite in giving Alabamians this message that we're lazy, good for nothing, greedy, no count, you know, welfare queens. It's possible that even though he's a total hypocrite in giving us that message, that maybe Maybe the message is true, right? You know, I could imagine a scenario in which like like a, like a preacher is talking about the importance of fidelity and saying you shouldn't cheat on your wife. And then he goes and cheats on his wife, but that doesn't make the, you know, you still shouldn't cheat on your wife even though the person telling you not to cheat on your wife was doing it himself, right? You know, we can imagine scenarios like this where a hypocritical person tells you a true message. So let's look at the arguments. Here's something from his article. Quote, our economy is in a perilous position. Job creators face a workforce shortage and an inflation crisis at the same time, all while trying to recover from two years of forced shutdowns. The federal government's spending addiction and rapid expansion of entitlement programs has made the cost of doing business unaffordable and decimated the will to work. End quote. Now, obviously, obviously, the idea 
that we went through, especially in Alabama, but frankly in anywhere in the country, even in the strictest places like New York or DC or LA or wherever, the idea that anywhere in the country went through two years of shutdowns or anything even close to it is absurd. That is a silly, silly, silly idea. Right. And the idea that that got printed in AL.com, when it is just so factually untrue, it is such, a, you know, it's it's bizarre. It's bizarre that, that he was able to print that because it's just factually not true. And, and we mentioned this earlier, and we're going to dig into it now, the idea that public support for working people that expired over a year ago is the reason for today's quote-unquote labor shortage is just as absurd, right? Let's look at the let's look at each of the programs. Working people got some amount of support from unemployment stimulus that ended in Alabama over a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago in June of 21. A year and a half ago this ended. A couple of stimulus checks the last of which was similarly given out a year and a half ago, and the expanded child tax credit, which ended nearly a year ago. Working people got some amount of support from those programs. Instead of this support fostering laziness, though, these policies kept us out of a recession. Or at least a worse recession uh, yeah. than what we're currently experiencing. It's just impossible. It's impossible to argue that the economy would have been a w in better shape if millions of people who were out of work at the beginning of, of the pandemic got nothing. It's impossible. It's impossible to make that argument. You can't. It's a nonsensical argument. The stimulus checks gave working people some breathing room. And thanks to the expanded child tax credit, child poverty was cut in half. And folks weren't just, they weren't just fittering this stuff away, right? The most common reported uses of those child tax payments were for basic needs, including food, just 65% of respondents, Utilities and telecommunications, which was 40% of respondents. Rent and mortgage, which was 39% of respondents. And clothing, which is 34% of respondents. And these people, which is the, the whole argument, the whole argument in this piece, right, is that, work, is that working people stopped working because we got this, this support. But the evidence, in fact, shows the opposite the St. Louis Federal Reserve found in their study of the child tax, uh, the, the expanded child care tax credit, that, quote, the rates of parents reporting that they were unemployed because they had to care for children substantially decreased after the CTC began from 26% to 19.9%. That means that of the 26% of parents who were unemployed because they had to take care of children, a full 20% of that group rejoined the workforce for right. whatever reason, presumably because they were able to pay for childcare and that was enough for them to be able to go out and get a job. Right. I mean, because working parents have, you know, all parents, but parents of working class background, we have to do the math. 
And we have to figure out, does it cost more to put my child in daycare than I'll actually bring home in wages? Right. That's a reality that millions of families have to face every day. Right. Additionally, additionally, from, from this, uh, from this article for, uh, from the, the study from the Federal Reserve, the researchers found that families making $50,000 or less per year in income actually saw their self-employment rate increase by 2.9 percentage points following the CTC payments. They note that, quote, if this trend continues, which it did not because politicians uh, like Tommy Tuberville decided that working parents don't deserve this support, they note that, quote, if this trend continues, it could indicate that the CTC is encouraging low-income households to pursue self-employment to make ends meet. Entrepreneurship. Innovation. Right? And this is the stuff that we're supposed to want. Innovation. Entrepreneurship. Starting your own business. People were able to do this because of the breathing room that they were able to get. How many people took classes and took courses online and added certificates to their resume? I mean... Right. People, people by and large did what people got more skills. Right. They did the sorts of things folks advised mm-hmm. them to do. Get more skills, uh, explore new markets in the job market, broaden their resume. Folks were doing that. Yeah. And so do it's funny how when you have like a little bit of breathing room right. and you actually can can afford to pay your bills from week to week and you're not on the edge of precarity and desperation. You can actually do some things that might constitute self-improvement. Yeah. But due to politicians' refusal to retain the expanded child tax credit, child poverty is now as high as it was before the pandemic. And on the unemployment stimulus, despite some governors, like our own Kay Ivey, cutting their citizens off from the much-needed support as quickly as possible back in June, before it ended for everybody, I think, in September, Is that when it was? Or December? There hasn't been any evidence to suggest that ending that unemployment stimulus, that ending those policies more quickly led to a reduced unemployment rate in the states that took that that tact. There's no evidence to suggest that states saw a further reduced unemployment rate from ending the unemployment stimulus early. And that's not me quoting from some lefty journal. Like, we could, we could find those. There are, you know, lefty think tanks that, that put out that research and showed that. But that's not even just coming from them. This is coming from the Wall Street Journal. From an article in the Wall Street Journal, quote, states that ended enhanced federal unemployment benefits early have so far seen about the same job growth as states that continued offering the pandemic-related extra aid, according to a Wall Street Journal analysis and economists. Economists. According to the conservative, business-minded Wall Street Journal, this did not reduce unemployment. So certainly, certainly at the very least, after we, we've gone through all of that, at the very least, we should be able to say that the, quote, decimation of Alabamians, quote, will to work can simply not be attributed to these policies more than a year since they've expired. It's just impossible to believe that. It's impossible to believe that. But then... Even just taking, you know, okay, maybe 
maybe that's not the cause of it, but maybe it's still the case that Alabamians just hate working and we're not working. Maybe that's the case. But no, that idea is ludicrous. The idea that our will to work is in jeopardy is ridiculous. In Alabama, the unemployment rate is lower than it was before the pandemic. The state's labor force participation rate is as high as it was before the pandemic. Similarly, get this, and I didn't realize that this was the case before I started researching for this article. Uh, that I, we, we responded to this in AL.com, and, and you, should, you should find the article and you should share it as, as well. But I figured this out when, when we were working on this article. The working age labor force participation rate, the working age labor force participation rate, which is just the labor force participation rate of people between the ages of 25 and 54. What is the rate of people within that age bracket, which is working age, that are working? That labor force participation rate is as high as it's been in 20 years when it hit its all-time high. It was like 20, 20 years ago when it hit its all-time high. We are basically near the all-time high of working age people working in the United States of America. More working age people are working today than when Senator Tommy Tuberville was a young man. He grew up in a time where 20% fewer working age people were at work than today. And that's after a battered workforce was reduced by COVID deaths and disability. You know, I think that people really just forget that one million more people died. One million, more than a million. One point, how much is it? 1.3, 1.4, 1.5 million more people have died than would have otherwise been the case over the pandemic. Right. And we also have to account for the fact that as many as 4 million people are out of work due to long COVID and COVID right. uh, lasting impacts. That's right. that's a lot of people who otherwise would be working, but who through disability and illness are not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we are doing this. More of us are working. Many of us are working longer hours. We're doing this for less money. Real wages are falling right now because of inflation, but profits are way above inflation. Raises for CEOs are way above inflation. We've talked about this, about how at the paper mill down in South Alabama, where Westrock has locked their union employees out, the CEO there got a 300% raise. I have never, and I don't expect to ever, I doubt, I very much doubt that I will ever in my lifetime see a 300% year-over-year raise. But millionaires do all the time. Billionaires do all the time. But not working people, but we're still getting up and going to work. We're still getting up and making the state run. So that brings up the question then. If he is so obviously wrong, as he is, and if he is so obviously wrong about every single point that he tried to make, from the reason that our will to work is decimated, from our will to work being decimated, from government handouts being being you know uh, uh, being detrimental to the unemployment rate, all on every single one of these things, he is just wrong. He's just objectively, demonstrably wrong. If that's the case, then why 
is he writing articles lecturing us? Why is he writing articles scolding Alabamians? Scolding working Alabamians instead of writing op-eds, let's say, blasting Warrior Met for not giving coal miners who want to work a fair contract? Why isn't he blasting West Rock for locking out its union workforce that want to work and not giving them a fair contract? Why isn't he blasting Amazon and Starbucks for firing Alabamians who want to work for having opinions that they don't like? That opinion being that they want to unionize. If he wants able-bodied people who want to work to be able to work, then why is he trying to squeeze us? Why is he trying to put pressure on us to, to do more for less instead of telling our bosses to pay up? It's because, folks, he isn't on our side. He's on their side. And it's helpful for them it's helpful for the people at the top if we're all tilted at windmills. If we're all attacking and being mad at these imaginary lazy people, if we're mad at them instead of being mad at folks that are actually making the decisions that are keeping us down, it's good for those folks at the top. And that's why he's doing it. He wants you to get mad at all these imaginary, lazy people that are not going to work, that are just taking government benefits, instead of being upset at your boss. Instead of being upset at the system that allows millionaires and billionaires to see things like 300% raises while we're taking 5%, 10% pay cuts in real terms. Because if you get mad at that, that might be a problem for people like Tupperville. He ain't on your side, folks. He ain't on your side. Adam, you got anything else to add to that or you want to go to a break? No, I, I think we said it all in the editorial, but I do want to point people to that. Um, working people should reject lectures from millionaires, I believe is the final title AL.com came up with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm grateful that AL.com did publish it. I think we noticed that we have about as many shares on our article as old Senator Tommy does on his original iPad. Yeah. And that's with AL.com not promoting it at all. So uh, not bad. Definitely uh, encourage folks to check it out. I'll drop a link in the chat. But um, it was a pleasure to work with you to respond to Tommy Tuberville and the complete asinine garbage he was spewing on AL.com. Yeah. He proved absolutely <laughs> nothing. He lied uh, and he revealed himself to be what we always suspected he was, which is on the side of bosses, on the side of the wealthy, uh, and completely opposed to us regular working class folks. Yeah. Exactly. All right, well, let's go ahead and take a break. And we're going to be talking about an Alabama state senator who doesn't want your child to have health care on the other side. So, oh, God, stay tuned. You've been listening to a recording of the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison on WZZA in Tuscumbia, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. You can listen to the full show on YouTube or wherever you find your podcasts. 
Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor, and you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We've got a phone number, and the line is open. That is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. If you want to call in, talk to us about uh, what's been, uh, you got any bad boss stories, you want to talk about your union, um, 
have any questions or if uh, if you want to defend Tommy Tuberville scolding Alabamians, feel free to call in. Uh, that phone number is open. And uh, Strom in the chat said, work is the only legitimate way to make a living. Indeed, that is our philosophy here. Um, and Konstantin uh, uh, Garfieldovsky says that uh, the Financial Times is good, as well as Strom saying uh, the Wall Street Journal and the Economist he reads every day because yeah. they are internal memos, memos of the bourgeoisie. And yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, there, there's definitely, you got to know how to read it, like Strom says, but uh, but but those are some good places to get to good, accurate reporting as long as you, you know, um, put, the, put the right lenses on. Right, particularly. It, right? I mean, the Financial Times and the Economist in particular, I, I definitely pay attention to uh, because that's true. That's This is the elite speaking to the elites, not yep. the swill they give to the rest of us. Uh, and I, I find it to be uh, quite illuminating what they mm -hmm. talk about. And in fact, they talk about labor relations a lot more than mainstream media does. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the Facebook chat, Joe and Mel say good morning. Good morning, y'all. Appreciate it. Edgra says uh, thousands of teachers voted for Tupperville. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, hopefully, I do hope that some of these people are able. I hope that I hope that enough folks see our response. I, I, I would just, I'd love for for people that he's talking down to to realize that like how much contempt he has for, for them and for us and for Alabamians, right? Because he obviously he he obviously has contempt for people like us. Um, I just I don't know. Want to do what I can to make people realize that Medicaid expansion is uh, that's a perennial topic of conversation in Alabama politics. Uh, it heats up, especially or uh, well, it heats up at the beginning of every legislative session, but especially at the beginning of a quadrennium which is when legislators feel the least heat from their constituents and, importantly, from lobby groups. Uh, it's why we're going to see a big school privatization push this session because parents and teachers have the least recourse right now. But it is also why we will hopefully see a big push for Medicaid expansion this session because the big lobby groups and the conservative AstroTurf organizations that oppose giving health care to Alabamians are going to have less leverage over those incumbents that might vote normally. That might would if they just voted their conscience, they might would vote to give their constituents health care, perhaps. Um, but during an election cycle, those big lobby groups and conservative, like anti I mean, just really anti-human organizations, right? I mean, if you're talking about if you're talking about not expanding Medicaid, that is just really an anti-human position, right? Because it it results in the deaths of people, it results in the deaths of people, the economic devastation of communities because it allows rural hospitals to close, um, and uh, it cuts jobs. I mean, it's just really an anti-Alabamian position to be anti-Medicaid expansion, but. Um, so some of the ghouls in Montgomery, they're trying to preempt any conversation about expanding health care access in Alabama. And State Senator Chris Elliott, he is the one at the forefront. He is one of the folks at the forefront of this anti-Alabamian campaign last week on the Jeff Poor Show. He said explicitly that he opposes Medicaid expansion because he reckons that if people don't have literal death, hanging over our heads, we won't work. He says, quote, I'm adamantly opposed to expanding Medicaid. When we, ex when we make it easier for people not to go to work, guess what they do? They don't go to work. And I mean, just think about that. 
for for I mean just two seconds, just one Mississippi, two Mississippi. Think about that. Who the hell is he talking about? I mean, this is even less believable than the people who reckon there are hordes of folks out there that are subsisting on food stamps just because. That are just happy to sit at home and collect food stamps. As if you can do that. As if you can just sit at home and collect food stamps and not work. It's even less believable than that. Because who are the people out there that are refusing to work simply because they have access to health care. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. It's also wrong because that's not who Medicaid right. expansion is even targeting. Medicaid expansion targets low-income workers, right? It's people who are already working, yeah. but either cannot afford the private health insurance that is offered at their job, or their job doesn't provide any insurance. Or they're working two or three part-time jobs and don't qualify for benefits. These are working people. These are people who are going to work. They are making money. But it's not enough money to qualify for subsidized uh, Obamacare under the ACA. But it's too much money to get Medicaid as it currently exists in the state of Alabama. It's the coverage gap. And it's well over 200,000 people in that situation. Well over 100,000 Alabamians are uh, offered private insurance but can't afford it. Yeah. Over 300,000 people would benefit from Medicaid expansion directly. Not not the knock-on effects, not the family side effects of having... Yeah, the family side effects of your loved ones not dying. Right. <laughs> Turns out it's great to get treatment when you're ill. God. When you have injuries, yeah. it is great to get assistance. Wow. So, yeah, he, he's wrong. I mean, he's morally wrong. First of all, but, you know, aside from that, his comments aren't even related to Medicaid expansion that's on the table. It has nothing to do with that. Yeah, it's just I mean, it, it is really just astounding. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is. I guess why let facts get in the way of, of tropes, right. because that's what he wants to traffic in is tropes. Right. And he doesn't want to pay attention to the facts around Medicaid expansion, which would make it easier for people to go to work and easier to stay working. Because again, turns out when you're not dying, that's it's easier easy. to go to work. <laughs> yeah, it's easy. When you easy break bones, work. it's better mm -hmm. to get treatment. When you yeah. have illnesses, it's better to get treatment and it's easier to go to work when you actually have health care. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, Strom in, in the chat says, you know, do they not go to work in England where they have a national health service? Of course they go to work. Do they not exactly. go to work in Canada? Uh, of course they go to work. Do able-bodied veterans not go to work with even though they have VA health care? Of course able-bodied veterans go to work. Right. Oh, and by the way, there are 13,000 veterans in the state of Alabama who for various reasons don't qualify for VA and can't afford private health insurance. They would get Medicaid under Medicaid expansion. So I guess Mr. State Senator Chris Elliott doesn't give a damn about those veterans. Of course. Of course he doesn't. You know, he's not interested in chiding the companies who aren't providing health insurance, which creates some of the demand for Medicaid expansion. He's not talking about them. Right. And, and this is a guy who is of a party that is all about economic development. Jobs, jobs, jobs. You remember that? Mm -hmm. There was literally a sign for Republicans that said jobs, jobs, jobs. I think that was... 
There was one that said jobs, not mobs, too. It was another one. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 you mentioned this in the notes, that it would be one of the most significant investments in rural Alabama's economic development in decades. Right. On par, you say, with the community college system and the Tennessee Valley uh, um, Authority. Yeah, I, I mean, I really do think, the if you look at the scale of the impact, right. Uh, and the ripple effects from that kind of investment, it would be right. on par with those two projects. I mean, which it would change create, rural Alabama. Yeah, create thousands of jobs in rural Alabama, allow rural hospitals to stay open, keep communities afloat. Because really, a lot of these communities in rural Alabama are anchored by the jobs that the hospitals provide. Right. They have, you know, in the same way that the that they're anchored by the schools, or exactly. that, that in the past they were anchored by you know, uh, a Ford plant or a GM plant or something like that, right? Or, or or the paper mill in Cortland, you know? I mean, places like that are now anchored by schools and um, and hospitals. And so in addition to, you know, like like you said, the the knock-on effects of, you know, just the direct impacts of, of you not dying and then the not, knock-on effects of your loved ones not having a loved one die, there's there's the economic impacts, which are, which are massive. The jobs, the investment... Um, so much so that there's a lot of research to indicate that it would probably pay for itself. Now, the money, the especially the upfront cost of expanding Medicaid is, is I know, a big sticking point. But it's really, it's, it's a very minor sum of money compared to the budget. Uh, there are many, many ways they could raise that money. They have been given many ways by many interest groups, by many citizens, many ideas on how they could raise the money. Uh, And that's assuming they end up having to really pay much out of pocket at all. And and I think that's an assumption because the economic development that would result, the additional tax revenues that would come from this, uh, it it makes it just one of the most sure bet economic development programs that Alabama politicians will ever get to pick from. Right, right. They don't treat it that way, but it is. Exactly. Exactly. That's uh yeah, and, and and you know, so the takeaway here is that either this guy is lying or he just has contempt for you, right? I mean, cuz that's his main argument. It's contempt for Alabamians. It's not even that that he doesn't even make the case really that it would cost too much. It wouldn't, of course. And and like we said, it would it would create jobs and it would be good for the economy in the area. But it's just that he has contempt for you, and he reckons that you should have just literal, actual death uh, hanging over your head before you contribute to society. Um, and and I pulled this clip from from I was just going to do this segment, but then I actually listened to the to the segment where he was interviewed on the Jeff Poor Show, and I was like, I have to talk about this. I have to play this because I, I want you to actually hear his words. Because he doesn't only want literal, actual death over your head. He wants it over your children's head, too. Let's listen to some of this from his appearance. on. It's reasonable to say you see a lot of the larger business folks and the hospitals in particular starting to put on the show about Medicaid expansion. Um, The Public Research Council of Alabama is starting to make its rounds about the benefits of Medicaid expansion and how important that is. I'm adamantly opposed to expanding Medicaid. Uh, I think it's going to be very expensive and put a huge burden on our budgets. Um, but I think the uh, the underlying issue that nobody likes to talk about is it changes society. When we have more people on the dole that don't have to go to work in order to get health insurance, we, we end up wondering why is our labor participation rate so 
so low? And the answer is because, in, you know, in Alabama, half of all the children born in this state are, are born into, into Medicaid or CHIPS on the government dole, half. And, and when we make it easier for people to not go to work, guess what they do? They don't go to All work. Right, I got to stop it there. Just to, yeah. just to point out, half of Alabama's births are on Medicaid, okay? So he is resentful for that. Yeah. Rather than asking the question, why is it half of the people in the state I've been elected to represent, why is it half of the births mm-hmm. are qualifying for Medicaid? Because he knows damn well Alabama is by no means New York or California. Right. Alabama is by no means the most, you know, flexible or, or broad or liberal Medicaid program, even for pregnant mothers, even for teenage mm-hmm. pregnant mothers. So why is it that mothers in us, our state are so poor that they qualify for Medicaid? That's not the question he's asking. Right. I'll continue. And that's my concern is that our policies change society and the way families function overall. Well, I, I tell you what, I hear that. I don't know anybody, at least on the Republican side of the aisle. Obviously, there's Democrats that are in favor of it, but but no one's no one's out in front of this one. And this is a big, big, big one. Uh, you know, I, I, maybe it does come up, but who who is gonna, in their right mind on the Republican side of the aisle is going to lead that charge? I don't know. I like I like that messaging, and I hope we can keep that up. I just know who that, in there. Just uh, stop that for just a second. Just who in their right mind on the Republican side of the aisle would dare <laughs> give <laughs> vote to ensure that their constituents have health care? Right. Like that's so removed from the what Republicans want to do. It, like Jeff Poor has 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 a problem even contemplating that. Like what there there are Republicans that like care about poor people. No, no, no. I don't think so, Chris. I don't think so. That would be that would be ridiculous. They would <laughs> they couldn't be Republicans if they cared about poor people. Yeah, and and the other thing I gotta say there, I have to go back for a second. I mean, about the half of births being covered by Medicaid. So would you propose they not be covered by Medicaid? I mean, is that really the logical conclusion here from Senator Chris Elliott is that we shouldn't cover them at all? Right. So, I mean, what what does that mean? I mean, do you look back fondly on on the Gilded Age? Do you look back fondly on an era before Medicaid and before any social services at all. I mean, yeah. maybe there'll be a, a rise in innovation from the churches and the poorhouses and the soup kitchens and the charities <laughs> yeah, right. who are going to take the place. Um, well, I think he's about, I think he's about to answer your question about d- does he does he wish that that these children weren't covered? Oh, uh, so yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. He sure will. I just know that uh, that I am starting to hear it more. And, and you and I've talked about this before. You know, you, you start hearing these little conversations over here from you know, Republican business leaders, and and I just, I, I, you know, oh, it's free money, and oh, we can't. There's nothing is free money, and again, there's a huge cost to society when you you don't you don't have to get out there and work to make sure your kids have health insurance. You don't have to get out there and and work to make sure your your children, you know, are uh, you know, you, you have coverage for your children to be born. Um, you know, just it's a scary place to go. I think it, it undermines the fabric of our society. And I had I've heard of employees that say, "Oh, I'm not getting married to my 
you know, to somebody I'd otherwise get married to because I can stay on this free state health insurance if I don't do that. That's a state policy that is bad for Alabama and bad for It's a scary place to go to ensure that regardless of income, mothers in Alabama can give birth. It's a scary place to go to ensure that regardless of their parents' income, the children will get the care they need. It undermines the fabric of society to ensure that children, babies, have health care regardless of their parents' income. I mean, like, how do you... uh, It's quite revealing. It's really difficult to even... It's really genuinely difficult to even formulate an argument against somebody like that because like we just have such fundamentally different moral compasses. Like I just reckon that I I reckon that even if your parent is one of these hypothetical imaginary no good layabouts that you should still have health care. If you're a child, even if your parent is a no-good layabout, you should have health care. And I, I, don't, I don't know how to argue that point to people like this. Like, I don't know how I convince somebody that doesn't think that, that that should be the case. I mean, it's just, we just have totally, just vastly, and I think, I think that my opinion is in line with even the majority, the super majority of Alabamians who are, you know, the voting Alabama. Um, I mean, of course, most registered Alabamians don't vote, and then most of them don't vote for Republicans. I think it's only something like 26% of the eligible voting population votes for Republicans. So, you know, but I think even among that group, even among that group, I am with the majority of people that say that regardless of parental income, your children should have health care. Like, I just don't think that's a radical position, but somebody like him who is so far on the other side of this issue, who, who, who says that, that actually your children's health should be used as a cudgel against you to make you go to work. I mean, I just, I, I just can't imagine, I can't get my head around this guy's morality. Well, I think he said a lot by, by bringing in fabric of society, because what he's saying is that for him, the fabric of society is is quilted through punishment, through leverage, through precarity, that the well-being not just of yourself but your actual children is dependent on you going out, participating in the marketplace, hoping it goes well enough for you. Because the alternative that this guy proposes is punishment. Punishment for children, punishment for babies, punishment for the elderly, for spouses. It's um, it's a level of cruelty that is just um, yeah. It's hard for us to imagine because we have basic empathy, man. Yeah. I mean, it, we don't want yeah. children to go sick, even if their parents are layabouts. Like I, I think, don't care what a parent uh, yeah. is. The, the, I, I think that the 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 number of people who would actually fall into that. Or just like genuinely like immoral, lazy layabouts. 
Um, I think that the number of people that exist like that are vanishingly small, but I think even if they have children, their children should have health care. Right. Like, I don't care if that person is the worst person a on earth. Yes. A literal murderer. If there's a child, the child deserves health care. Just like they deserve a safe, healthy life and a good education and a safe home. It's it's really... It, and the thing that will piss me off more than anything, and I and I have intentionally not looked it up because of this, but I would bet you money that State Senator Chris Elliott describes himself as pro-life. I bet he's real pro-life. He's so pro-life that he thinks it's okay to punish children, deny children health care because of what their parents may or may not do. makes me sick. It makes me sick to think that a person with this mentality has any position of authority over other human beings. What kind of what kind of mentality does this guy have when he sits down every year for the budget and when he reviews legislation? Think he gives a damn about any of us? Let's go ahead and take a break. I see that we've got a caller on the other on the line. So if you want to stay on through the break, we'll take your call really quickly, really quick. Have to be quick, 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 uh, because we have a uh, because we have a railroader coming on to talk to us about the latest on the uh, negotiations. So we will take your call on the other side of this break. Stay tuned, folks. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. 
Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, Or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.com. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. only Union Talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. We're broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, We got some folks hanging out with us in the chat. We appreciate uh, y'all. Christine Park says, I wonder how that Chris Elliott guy feels about public education. Uh, Probably not the same way that we do. Uh, Free American 2020 says, first time I have watched. I normally listen on WVNN. Good to put faces with voices. We appreciate you tuning in. um, And especially we appreciate you tuning in from WVNN, where we know that a lot of people have, you know, maybe differing opinions than us. Um, we we think it's I listen to I listen to lots of conservative talk radio probably you know more than is healthy more than is healthy yeah so I think it's good I think it's good to get different perspectives it's like um, we were talking about yesterday I I hate listening to NPR uh, right, right. so that you don't have to <laughs> that's right that's right yeah so uh, like I said we got a caller on the line eight four three area code what's your name where are you calling from this is a uh, Strom McCallum and I'm calling from uh, South Carolina. Strom from South Carolina, how do? Thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. Appreciate your, uh, yeah, appreciate your contribution in the chat as always. Uh, yeah, what's on your mind? Thank you. I'm going to keep this to 15 to 20 seconds because I know y'all have a uh, guest. 
Um, I think that we should not hesitate to call these opponents of Medicaid expansion and these people who are mad at people for being hesitant to take jobs which pay non-subsistence wages, um, anti-human and uh, victim blamers. That's what I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think the anti-Medicaid expansion is, is very much like an anti-human position. Uh, I, I don't see how you can justify it. Especially in the way that he presented it, right? I mean, it was explicitly like an anti-child position. Like, I want to hang your child's health over you, right? I mean, it, it, it's it, unconscionable. Yep. And the uh, governor of my state has similar lines about both Medicaid expansion and um, people being hesitant to take these uh, bad wage jobs. So, <laughs> yeah, solidarity. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Strom. Thanks for the call, Strom. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely, yeah. I 100% agree. Anti-human. That's what these people are. Yeah. All right, folks. So unions representing more than half of railroad labor have now voted down the agreement that was negotiated between the unions, bargaining committees, and the rail companies with the help uh, help, you know, in quotation marks, of the president of the United States and the secretary of labor. And let's remember, this is the deal that, that Biden really tried to sell us on. Uh, the media really helped him with that, um, especially the right-wing media who said that these railroad workers got the whole store, is what Ben Shapiro said, if you'll remember. Golly. And yet, despite Biden trying to convince us and the railroad workers that the deal was good, a majority of a majority of them have now voted it down. And so here to answer the question, why is... Paul Lindsay. Paul Lindsay is a locomotive engineer. He serves on the steering committee of the Railroad Workers United. He is a Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen member. That is a Teamsters affiliate. Uh, and Ron said he is party to the National Freight Agreement. And and uh, and so Paul appreciate you coming on the show. Does that mean that you're on the negotiating committee for the BLET? Uh, no, no, that uh, that's not what that means. I'm not sure how that verbiage got in there exactly, but um, I, I definitely have been um, working hard to try to get the uh, details of the agreement out to my fellow colleagues and everything. And I, I, I take part in what's been going on with the Surface Transportation Board hearings and um, writing a lot of uh, letters related to the railroad industry about it but no i i don't work with negotiations gotcha gotcha okay i i, I appreciate that paul and i and i appreciate and, I, and i'll just lay this out for folks we had uh we had ron scheduled to be on he is an organizer for the railroad workers united which is an inter-union cross-craft solidarity caucus of railroad labor um we had him scheduled but he is not able to attend because he got called into work right <laughs> he had to, he had to go get on the trains uh, that's correct. He works as an engineer out of uh, Reno. I, I actually literally just got off work less than an hour ago. I brought a train over all last night. Mm. So, and that's um, and and I think I, I hope and and you'll answer this in more detail as you know as we continue. But but I hope that kind of illustrates the uh, not only you know the hardworkingness of of railroad workers, right? Uh, despite you know lectures from politicians and media folks. Um, to y'all and, and the broader public saying that, you know, you're lazy and, and, and you're getting too much money, but also the, um, the instability of it, you know, I mean, we had, you know, 
he didn't know if he was going to be at work today. And, and so we, we booked him, you know, figuring that, that he was going to be able. And then he just got called into work uh, with less than 24 hours notice because he just told me like, uh, he told me like seven hours ago that, <laughs> that he wasn't going to be able to make it and, and he's going to have you come in come instead. And so, you know, the that's the kind of stuff that, that y'all have to put up with all the time, right? I mean, what what does the on-call schedule look like for folks like you and Ron? Well, we'll schedule. That word needs to just be deleted. There is no schedule. Mm. Um, but it's 24 hours on call. I've worked the last seven days in a row. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, you, you mentioned having 24 hours notice. It's a lot less than that. I mean, we, we get an hour and a half call time. Uh, basically, our phone rings, and we need to be ready to go to work for a couple days at a time. And it, it might be two o'clock in the morning. It might be 6 a.m. It may be noon. Um, you kind of try to look at where the trains are and the lineup on the on the website, but you never know exactly what you're getting called for. But right. it's it's part of it's part of what we do and it's what we've always done. And we've never had a retention problem like we do now. Um, it, it, this all comes down to the deterioration of the work conditions because of the attendance policies and a lot of the other policies instituted by the rail industry in the last few years. Um, yeah. well, well, let's talk some about, yeah, well, let's talk some about those policies. I, I want to get to, you know, the latest and, and, and all of that, but, uh, and, and we did have, uh, Hugh Sawyer on, he, he's a railroad worker from Georgia, uh, about a month ago, maybe two months ago. And he went over some of this, but, but I just want to remind folks because, uh, the this issue gets vanishingly you know little coverage it seems like for as important as y'all are to the nation's economy um and then when it gets covered you you just really don't hear about the effects of that that folks like you have to have to go through and what you've been putting up with so so talk to us some about why railroad workers are are unhappy in the first place like what are those policies over the last you know few years last decade or so that have really um created a problem for employee retention? Um, so in general, over the last few years, especially, we, we've seen a deterioration of our industry. Now, you look at the, the railroad, you look at a lot of people that work there. A lot of them are generational and they have parents, grandparents. Uh, they've been in the, the industry for a long time. Um, and over the last few years, especially, though, we, we've seen this disappearance of this company that we used to, at least even though we have our disagreements with it, at least admire the industry in the favor of share buybacks and the and the pursuit of precision scheduled railroading, of lowering the operating ratio, of of cutting everything. I mean, wh whether you're talking uh, the maintenance staff, the maintenance facilities, uh, crews, furloughing crews, um, even even little petty things that that sound ridiculous, but like it's I don't remember when when the last time was that we had a summer employee picnic during the summertime. Our, our company mm. is the largest, oldest employer in, in Pocatello, and yet we didn't have any representation at the at either of the two parades this summer. They don't mm. they don't care anymore. They are pursuing um, the almighty operating ratio. And they are there pursuing gains for Wall Street now. They don't run a railroad. They run uh, a corporation. They run a stock symbol that just so happens to run trains. And that, that fundamentally comes down to 
um, what has changed uh, um, uh, with the industry. And where that has led us to is they have furloughed several years ago. They furloughed lots and lots of conductors that they hired. And this was before COVID. They're trying to blame COVID for manpower shortages. They furloughed these employees that were loyal and that some had moved there to work. Um, and this happened all around the country. Um, and then when it came time to pull these guys back two years, two or three years later, um, none of them wanted to come back. And for good mm. reason. The railroad doesn't want to show any sort of stability. So right. we had a single digit retention rate on the employees coming back to work because the railroad showed up what they really think of their employees. And so they just ran us ragged and around the country. It's still happening all over the place where um, these assignments that used to kind of be predictable. So even though you're on call 24 seven, if you're on a regular run, you usually kind of have a general idea of, oh, well, I'm going to be off for about a day and a half and then I'll get called back to work. But when they're out of people, they're calling you to step up, calling you on the phone seven, eight, nine times a night while you're trying to sleep to take assignments that aren't yours. And guys have been doing that, especially in some terminals around the railroad for months and months and months working every day. And that is where a lot of the uh, that is where a lot of the just um, worn out, uh, disgruntled mentality has come from is and that is where the. Uh, retention among long-term employees, uh, retention rate going down is coming from because the quality of life has gone away. Another thing is that we are uh, three years without a contract. Now they say, oh, well, engineers just ratified. It was only like a 52 to 48% ratification, definitely not overwhelming. And I don't know anyone personally who, who voted for that contract for several reasons. Um, I, I go into, um, but I, I got to cover the attendance policy as well. So the railroads over the last few years have imposed these attendance policies, basically implying that really your life belongs to them. You don't own your life. And, and a lot of us are starting to, uh, especially with the three years out of contract and watching the railroads um, embargo our customers and drive freight away and uh, slow our operations down and, and essentially in, per, in pursuit of more money for Wall Street. Um, in doing this, we just, um, yeah, it, it's just a cumulative pile that has led to a low retention rate and a disgruntled view where we don't right. want to vote for that, want to vote for that contract. And, yeah, and, and I, I got, well, oh. let's make the, 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 the sick leave attendance policy explicit. Yeah. If you, ha if you haven't already, and, and I missed it, it's how many sick days do y'all get? We don't get any paid sick days per year. We never have. Um, we get we get vacation time, which uh, you know it, it's not like uh, you know it's not like European countries where you get uh, vacation automatically. I've worked seventeen years to get my fourth week of vacation finally next wow. year, um, and that's working twelve hours some days, seven days, or some weeks uh, seven days in a row. Um, yeah, it, it um, 
Right. Yeah, it's just exhausting. As I said, I've been on a train all night. It, it can be exhausting. I, I, I want to. I mean, just driving, uh, you know, just driving uh, uh, down to Birmingham, like an hour and a half, two hour drive is not fun. You know, you feel a little bit wiped after that. Uh, you know, I couldn't imagine having to be on a train, this huge machine for 12, 14 hours. It's just ridiculous, uh, unsafe, obviously, and, and, and very tiring. And so the wh where we're at now is that unions representing more than half of railroad labor have voted down the tentative agreements that were negotiated with, the, you know, quote-unquote help of President Biden and, and Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh. Um what was in those agreements that were supposed to, I mean, we were told that these were, these were great. These were great, uh, and they're going to really provide for railroad workers. They're going to make the industry better. You know, Biden was really, really trying to sell y'all and sell us on this. How disconnected was what he was saying from reality? Okay, so going back to, you mentioned that Ben Shapiro quote about our agreement, about giving us everything, basically. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll start with mentioning that the percentage, they, they like to tout the percentage increase um, that, that they were giving us and touting that that's the largest single percentage increase in decades for railroaders. Well, we also are seeing the highest inflation in decades. Right. Um, but that percentage does not include the only portion of our income that is non-taxable. So that is that is an issue that I've been pushing heavily is that we lost our ability to itemize our meals a few years ago when those tax mm. cuts okay, or tax changes or whatever you want to call them during the uh, Trump administration. It wasn't a tax cut for us. We lost six or seven thousand dollars in yearly deductions. Wow. Can't write off our meals when we're away from town 200, 250 days a year. Wait, so um, wait hold on. Wait, wait, wait a second, Paul. Wait a second. So you're telling me that the tax cuts for working class Americans that was touted by Donald Trump in 2017 actually raised your taxes? Yes, transportation workers, it took away a vital deduction that we've always used. Wow. We were able to take a standard amount for every day that we were gone and write it off at the end of the year. And that was a huge improvement. We lost that. It's costing us. I have, I estimate about six or seven thousand dollars a year, depending on how actively you're working on the road versus in the yard um, when we're gone. So, um, so we get a non-taxable meal allowance, right? That hasn't gone up, at least in my area. It hasn't gone up since 1993. So I can be gone away from home for two days at a time, and I only make twelve dollars. On my non-tax, and that did not go up in this contract. So they can tout the highest percentage pay increase in in decades, but there are certain portions of our pay that still are untouched, like the only portion that the IRS can't touch, that uh, that the state can't touch. That's actually our product of our labor to keep dollar for dollar. Um, so that's an issue that I uh, push heavily on. What was you you? Um, you mentioned about the contract, other provisions in it that, that we did not like. Yeah, well, just that, what that, were the because because Biden was really touting it. And, and of course, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, that I mentioned that Ben Shapiro was really going out of his way to make it seem like y'all, quote unquote, got the store. Right. But even Biden was going out there and saying that it was it was this is a great deal. This is a great deal. And, and you know, it's really going to help y'all. And, and so, you know, w what were some of the other things that, that seemed to y'all disconnected from reality? That, that Biden was saying specifically? 
So one of the things we were going for was the ability to take time off work when we're sick, when we, uh, when our family's sick, just the ability to take time off. That is something that's changed in the last few years, uh, particularly is the crackdown on attendance, the ability to take time off when you need it. And the attendance policies were preventing people from doing that. So that became a big issue and the unions were fighting for uh, paid sick time, which it's kind of funny. There's actually an executive order somewhere saying that federal contractors are required to provide paid sick time to their employees. Right. And the railroads claim that they're not subject to that, but yet with everything else they claim to be subject to it. So, again, the railroads just get away with whatever their interpretation of the law is. We're asking for paid sick days. So this agreement, this uh, record amazing agreement basically gave us three extra paid days or not unpaid days off per year, not paid, <laughs> God. three days off per year. That you've got to plan at least thirty days off in advance. Thirty days only- in advance. Oh wow! I'm gonna have. I'm gonna get COVID thirty days from now. Exactly. I can feel I'm, it. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna plan for that. Yep. And you can only wow. take it on Tuesday, Wednesday, or a Thursday. By the way, too, you can't take it on any sort of weekend or anything. Um, so that is the well. Amazing- well, hopefully now, well, Paul. Now this contract also comes with. I mean, COVID is coming to the table as well, and saying that they're not going to get you sick during the days that you can't take off, and they'll give you thirty. And that COVID is going to give you thirty days advance notice. Right. right? Yeah. The flu I mean, is going to yeah <laughs> definitely give you thirty days notice. Yeah. <laughs> so that is the record, amazing, great compromise. Oh. Was three extra days unpaid. And and also the railroads promise that they won't discipline us if we're ever in the hospital. You know how generous of them. Um, but also unpaid lost, while you're in the hospital, right? Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Wow. <laughs> so what we what we lost was essentially our entire system of schedule. So while we don't have schedules, we do have a system that makes it to where our our runs are somewhat predictable that we know if you're on or so you can be on the extra board and work every day and cover all kinds of assignments different directions and when you get sick of that you can go to a regular run just going a single direction you kind of have some sort of flexibility in your life well um the railroad's been pushing for this idea of self-protecting pools for for years basically making it to where so if you're on a regular run and there's 10 trains on the lineup and you are six, the sixth one on the lineup, then whenever the sixth train goes out, you're going to be the one on it. You kind of watch where they are location-wise. Um, if, let's say, someone takes a sick day ahead of you, the first and second people take a sick day ahead of you, it doesn't affect you because someone off the extra board covers your spot. So you stay the same relative to them. So if you go to bed at 8 o'clock at night expecting to go to work at 6 o'clock in the morning, you shouldn't, in theory, get a surprise call at hmm. 11 p.m. right as your eyes are closing that you need to go to work. But the railroads want self-protected pools. They want to cut staff even more and get rid of our extra boards so that the pools cover themselves. So if those two guys lay off sick ahead of you, well, I, I guess you're going to work right as you were going to sleep. So hmm. um, they want that. And they've been wanting it for years. Well, they used this contract as an opportunity to slide that in there. Wow. And they basically gave the railroad a blank check that, well, we're going to open the door for self-protecting pools now. And that will significantly reduce any quality of life we have, especially if you're on a longer run, like where, where I'm at, it's going to significantly reduce quality of life. So we 
got three Paul, unpaid. I hate off. to, Paul. I hate hate to cut you off, but we're coming up on our radio exit. We're going to continue the show with Paul Lindsay on the other side of this break, talking to him about what is next. And what's next is that the unions have a strike date set for December the 9th. And so something has to happen before December the 9th or else we're going to see a huge rail labor strike. And we'll talk about what those uh, courses of actions can be on the other side, online. Come find us on YouTube, on Facebook. We're going to be continuing this conversation with Paul Lindsay about that and about public ownership of the rails. All right, let's close the WVNN tab. Uh, yeah, so Paul, I, uh, uh, we're, we're off the radio now and we are, um, you know, I, I want to continue this conversation about, about the rails. And, and one of the things that y'all are pushing is, is public ownership of the rails. And I want to dig into that conversation some more. Uh, so it, um, so we're going to take a break and have, have you got another 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes to talk to us about that? Oh yeah, sorry. I tend to be kind of long-winded. Sometimes. No, no. This is no. This has been great. I I, I appreciate it, and it, and it's I I you know I think that I think that the folks that are listening on the radio I I think that they were really able to get a sense of of what y'all are having to go through. So we're gonna take a really quick break, uh, get some water and stuff, and then we were we're gonna continue this conversation with Paul Lindsay, uh, railroad worker and a member of the steering committee of Railroad Workers United. 